Good morning, Professor Angita, uh, Minister Khattab, Excellency the Ambassador, my dear friend. Uh, actually, uh, it is a great honor for me and privilege to come today to address you in this, you know, distinguished school or institute. Uh, we came all the way yesterday evening from Cairo. It's almost uh, 18 hours, uh, the difference between the two countries, uh, Egypt and the United States. So you might uh, expect that I will be a little bit exhausted, especially <laughs> after this, you know, reach, actually, <laughs> introduction by Professor Angita. What, and uh, it's a very good introduction, by the way. Uh, it's a very provocative. Anyway, uh, let me start by uh, the, the so-called Arab Spring. I think uh, this will be uh, the time, uh, which is almost 2011, where the Middle East, you know, was almost embarked on a new era. Before that, we were barraged by different notions and slogans from U.S. and from some other parts of the world about the clash of civilization, about the nation building, uh, about the uh, constructive anarchy by Mrs. Uh, Dr. Condoleezza Rice, and many other things, actually. And we were, you know, in the midst of all this uh, new political uh, principles and slogans. And then the Arab Spring came. We have now a new, I would say, Middle East, different than before 2011. And that's why I will start to indulge, you know, to tell you some uh, new, new phenomena, actually, which is now prevailing in our region. And I think th uh, these phenomena will pave the way for us to understand the situation in the region. And in the meantime, it might provoke some questions from your side. And I think this is my mission today, as I understood from you. Uh, anyway, I think we should start by uh, saying that, our, that, let us say, the first phenomena, which is now uh, it is completely new, that terrorism in our region is now crossing the border. In the 80s and the 90s, we had the same phenomena, which is terrorism, but it was, you know, restricted to the borders of each country in the Middle East, in Egypt, in Algeria, and many other countries also. But now, these groups acquire uh, four-by-four cars and sophisticated weapon, weapons, and they can cross the borders from country or state to state, like we can see in uh, Syria and Iraq. ISIS, the occupied a lot of lands from uh, uh, Iraq and Syria. And I think the main notion behind you know, this uh, phenomena is to try to undermine the idea of the central government, of the central state, which means, yes, you are in the capital, you are the president or so, you have your conventional army, but you cannot control the whole lands of your country. This is the main notion of you know, having this uh, kind of phenomena, to threat the idea of the central government and the unity of the countries. And they succeed, by the way, I cannot uh, say. And in the meantime, 
they undermined the idea to have a conventional army. Yes, you can buy tanks and uh, uh, everything you want, and groups of people, some of them even wearing uh, slippers, but they have machine guns and they are, you know, crossing the border from place to place and occupied lands and even, you know, killing people brutally. And I think all of you, you heard about the brutality of ISIS or Daesh, as we said, in our region. This will lead us to another point, that the region is fighting another war, which is the war of attrition. Why war of attrition? All the resources of this region is devoted actually for security. And all the countries in our region, even Egypt, we are paying a lot of money and we are even devoting a lot of our resources to maintain the security of the country. So this is actually what I called a war of attrition in our region. Also, we have a new thing in the region, the increased appetite of the regional powers like Turkey, Iran, Israel, Ethiopia, to interfere in the internal you know, affairs of the Arab countries. And you can feel that. For instance, Turkey is occupying lands from two uh, Arab states, Iraq and Syria. Iran has a lot of militias in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen. So this is actually an, a new thing also, because, you know, we didn't witness such an interference from the regional powers in the region. And, of course, Israel feels that they are, you know, they having this kind of strategic relaxation. They are in the best, uh, I would say, position now in the region, because the whole neighborhood is, you know, indulged in this kind of fighting, and they are just watching and waiting for the results. Another thing, we have a new alliance in the region, a strategic alliance and tactical alliance. The strategic alliance, I think all of you, let us say if you talk five years ago about the possibility to have the uh, summit between the Russian president and the Iranian president and the Turkish president, to discuss a situation in the Middle East, I think that was just a dream or illusion. But now it is a reality. And actually, I am trying today to give you the reality of the region. It might be a little bit uh, pessimistic vision, but I think this is the reality. And maybe you will agree with me after that. So we have a strategic alliance now. It is also new. Then we have a tactical alliance on the ground which means that we can guarantee a safe corridor to group of terrorists to withdraw from certain places in Syria and Iraq under the protection of United States or sometimes Russia and so on. 
And this tactical alliance, it is completely different than the strategic alliance which we are witnessing and following in the newspaper and the news. A lot of arrangements done, you know, with different alliance on the ground, just to guarantee that, you know, th these groups will withdraw from certain places, you know, safely and secure. A new element also, or a new phenomena, that for the first time, let us say, in the recent history, we have boots, Russian boots, on the Arab soil. Yes, somebody will tell me that in 73 war in, uh, between Egypt and Israel, you have experts from Russia. Yes, but they were not combating, you know, forces. But now we have Russian troops on the ground, and I think all of you know that they are, you know, paid a heavy price and they have a lot of casualties, but of course it is not announced in, uh, in Russia. But this is a fact. And a new thing also, actually I cannot count uh, how, how many points I said so far, but anyway, a new thing that terrorism proved that they are faster than governments. So they can regroup themselves, they can initiate new tools and new uh, methods in order to be in the territory of the Arab world. And I can tell you that they are now regrouping themselves in a state called Mali in Africa. And there is a real war now in Mali in Africa under the leadership of France and three African countries and some logistics from Germany. So this is just to prove that they are faster than governments. And they are trying to build a new wave of terrorism which will start from Somalia with Shabab till Nigeria, Boko Haram. And this belt actually will be the real threat to our national security. So the region is armed to the teeth, as you said here in the United States. And despite you know, the fact that we have a lack of development in our region, but we are devoting a lot of money and resources actually to have good procurements from everywhere. That's why we have an, a new phenomenon also that the region now is full of foreign bases, foreign military bases. Your fifth fleet in Bahrain, in Manama, but this is an old, I would say, uh, presence. It's not new. But you can see that some countries like United Arab Emirates, which is considered for, as, for the Arab nations one of the best model of development and many other things, but now they are seeking you know, to have military bases in different places, in Somalia, in Djibouti, and they are involved for the first time in their history by boots in Yemen. So this is also a new thing in the region, that some countries, they never you know, indulge in any military conflict, 
for Egypt, of course, we have a long history of war and conflicts with Israel and many other places, and Syria is the same thing. But for a country like United Arab Emirates, it is a new thing for them, and to bear all these casualties also. So I try to tell you that you know our region is suffering a lot, and actually we are sailing in a turbulent sea. Even the chronic crisis which we have in the region, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya, actually have been hijacked by different, I would say, uh, foreign powers. Even the UN representatives, you know, to solve these problems, they are not even Arabs. Just for Libya, Hassan Salama, he is from Lebanon. They give him responsibility to try to tackle the issue in uh, Libya. But the rest, all of them, from Britain, from Italy, from Germany, and so on. And we should add also that we have a limited influence and leverage from the United Nations to all this, you know, crisis. Each crisis, which I consider it chronic crisis, because this is also one of the new things, that we will have problems and don't expect that we'll have a peaceful solution in the near future. It will remain with us for a certain time. We will live with these problems for many years to come. So, and this is also a new thing. And maybe I will add for the new things in our region that any entity will appear for the last few years, it will remain on the ground. If you are talking about ISIS, yes, they will remain. The Islamic State will stay and remain in the 2% of the Syrian territory. Yes, of course, there is a sort of diminishing to their capabilities, but they will remain. The Kurdish entity also will remain, despite the fact that Turkey is against it and even fighting, you know, these groups on the Syrian soil and on the Iraqi soil. Maybe one of the main reasons behind, you know, this kind of prolongation of the crisis in our region that the international community or the international society never try to look in a comprehensive strategy in order to dry out the capabilities of terrorism in our region. The money transfer, buying weapons and uh, uh, 4x4 cars from Japan, and many other things, actually, it is also under, you know, the monetary and the, under the control of different uh, foreign intelligence, especially the United States. There is a Yemeni guy who transferred $100,000 to uh, one of the, of the charity groups here. So the day after, the United States sent an uh, unmanned, uh, aerial, uh, uh, what do they call it, uh, 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 a plane without pilot. Drone. Yes, drone. <laughs> Thank you. And they killed him. So 
which I, I, I'm not talking about uh, the killing itself, but it means that, you know, everything is under the eyes of a lot of people, the Americans and the British and so on. So this is the kind of region we, which we are living now. And of course, that this region, it is not just uh, separate from the outside world. I would tell you that, you know, if you are considering that the borders will protect you, I think this is uh, now an old uh, slogan. The uh, climate change, terrorism, all these things actually is con not considering any kind of borders. They are moving freely from place to place. So that's why we should put that on, uh, into account. Uh, I think I still have some time. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I will try to give you a realistic uh, vision, as I said. But in all this, unfortunately, the, uh, the main issue which we are you know, always talking about, which is the Palestinian uh, question, is now, and especially from the 2011 till now, actually it lost the momentum of this you know, uh, problem. It lost the credibility even. And there is no enough attention from the outside world or even from the Arab world, by the way. Uh, I, I should be, you know, frank and candid with you. And um, uh, now we have a new uh, thinking from the American administration is try to dismantle this question. How? You know, when we were talking, I, I spent actually my, uh, the last 40 years uh, dealing with this question in different ways. When we are talking about the Palestinian question, we're always talking about two things, thorny issues, which is Jerusalem and the refugees, and then the normal issues like settlement and water and many other things. So I think the administration now started to uh, try to eliminate or to put aside all the thorny issues by accepting you know, the transformation of, uh, I can see your smile. Uh, <laughs> It's okay. I, I, I succeed to provoke you. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, so um, now they are trying to, as I said, to dismantle the, the, the whole issue and to impose certain notions or solutions on the Arab world. And they're even calling it the century uh, uh, deal or whatever. Uh, we are not sure about the details of this century deal so far, but actually this maybe will combine with the, what you said about how we are seeing the foreign policy of the United States in our region. I still remember a meeting between President Mubarak, our former president, and your former uh, uh, Defense Secretary of State, Rumsfeld. That was just, you know, after the invasion of Iraq. And it is invasion, yes. It's not uh, just uh, a mission there. And Mubarak told Rumsfeld, my advice is to keep the Iraqi army intact. I mean, not to try to dismantle this army. Because, you know, the young officers will... Uh, lose their jobs, and this will be a very dangerous situation in Iraq. And actually, this is what happened. Most of them, they joined ISIS 
after that. But anyway, this is the way of the, how the Americans are looking to us. Yes, they are listening to you, but they never took your advice in their strategy. Never. And we had a lot of experience on that subject. And I'm sorry to say that. Because, you know, sometimes if you are looking to Egypt or Saudi Arabia or whatever as a real friend and a strong ally, you should listen to their advice. And in the meantime, you should consider this advice in your strategy as a superpower dealing with the Middle East. But uh, I can tell you that uh, since, I would say, my be uh, the beginning of my career, I never you know, uh, thought that the Americans uh, followed one of our advice at all. Maybe when Sadat went to Jerusalem and uh, started the peace, uh, peace negotiation, I think that was maybe the lead. And of course, Sadat has this initiative. And of course, the whole world were following it. And maybe that's why the Americans also at that time should, I would say, respect what he did and even to encourage him. So actually I'm trying to touch the uh, how we are looking to the American policy in, uh, in the Middle East. And of course now we have an unpredictable, uh, I would say, uh, policy uh, from the new administration. And this unpredictability actually it was, it will be very dangerous in the situation in the Middle East. But uh, let me conclude by saying that uh, the Secretary of Defense, Matthias, he was in Manama dialogue uh, 10 days ago, and he announced a new thing, which is the uh, MESA, the Middle East Strategic Alliance, the six Gulf states uh, plus Egypt and Jordan. And this is also part of that the Americans always thinking that they can impose certain solutions or certain even initiatives without even consulting with the parties in the region. And that's why I'm not sure if uh, this initiative, you know, uh, will be fulfilled or not so far. But he got some approval and consent from Saudi Arabia and Bahrain so far, so maybe this will encourage him to, uh, to pursue his endeavor in that regard. Uh, I hope that I <coughs> convey to you, you know, the pulse of the region and uh, trying, you know, to give you the... Um, reality which we are living uh, uh, now in our region. It is, uh, as I said, uh, we are sailing in a uh, turbulent uh, sea, but uh, I can also assure you that Egypt is doing its best, you know, in different fronts. We are fighting or combating terrorism. We are trying to encourage the Palestinians and the Israelis to resume the peace talks again. We are, uh, of course, fighting, or let us say, devoting a lot of sources, you know, for development to our countries. So the country actually is torn between uh, many things, but uh, I can tell you that uh, uh, we are doing our best, and we are doing fine so far. And I can tell you that in the near future, we will see uh, a new stable uh, Egypt, uh, you know, emerging in the Middle East, and I think this would be one of the good factors which you can rely on in your strategy, and you can even put your plans on that, uh, you know, bet. So thank you very much, and I'm so sorry that I give you a very pessimistic, you know, uh, 
<laughs> vision, despite that we have a good weather today. Mm -hmm. And uh, I expect okay. from you some maybe uh, hard questions in uh, <laughs> after, Thank you, after a few minutes. <laughs> Thank you, Minister, for this opportunity. Thank you, Minister, for this opportunity you gave us to listen to you. And that is really what this, what this institute is all about, about listening to each other. So uh, with that in mind, we have six leaders um, who are going to interrogate you, mm -hmm. who are going to be our interlocutors for the morning. And they come from different perspectives. Again, in celebration of plural perspectives, uh, Mohammed for example, is a, is a doctoral student who is an Israeli, uh, an Arab Israeli. So he, is, uh, he, comes, he has a different point of view. I'm not going to introduce everyone, but I just want you to understand that there is a pluralist chorus of voices. So um, the six leaders are now on stage. So who would like to begin? Mohammed, probably you started by him. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, go ahead. This is the microphone. It's recorded. 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 It's and many people claimed that the U.S. lost its impartiality and, and objective view, especially after the transfer of the uh, embassy to Jerusalem. Do you still think the U.S. can remain as a broker between the Israelis and the Palestinians? And if not, who might be a potential alternative? Yes, my simple answer, yes. United States, actually, you cannot uh, replace United States, you know, with any other power in the world, uh, because United States, I think, she is the only power who could deliver Israel. And, uh, I, and when I'm talking about the word deliver, it's not a bad thing, by the way. But uh, deliver, it means that they can uh, persuade Israel, you know, to take these hard uh, decisions uh, concerning many, many things. But now, the, um, what we are seeing is uh, that the United States is tilting towards, you know, the Israeli positions, uh, and uh, they never try to consider the Palestinian rights so far. And uh, they are talking about, uh, you know, a new deal and take it or leave it. And this is not, uh, you know, the, the way to, uh, uh, to negotiate. And I think uh, in, in their mind they can, uh, I would say, uh, talking about the status quo, that this is the best thing now we have in, for the Palestinian question is to uh, enlarge and cement the status quo. Uh, they consider Ramallah as uh, a city-state, and so it, it is enough for the Palestinians. Uh, why you want you know, the rest of the uh, West Bank and Gaza? So this is actually the United States is still the only power who could deliver Israel, but they have their own concept now, which is you know, against the whole, I would say, peace process which we started many years ago. 
And uh, that's why this will be the dilemma which we are facing. Uh, that, uh, and uh, don't forget, uh, expect any progress in the Middle East peace process now. We will indulge in a real impasse for many years. And the Palestinians, some of them, they know that. And some of them, they even said, okay, we can stay for another 70 years waiting for the, our rights. So if I had started, I would have started with an easy question, but since I didn't, I'll go right to the heart of things. Um, can you talk about how having a neighbor like Syria that purportedly has used chemical weapons um, changes a country like Egypt's calculus toward the chemical weapons convention um, against which it's had a fairly harsh stand? <laughs> you consider this an easy question? <laughs> ah, the hard, ah, okay, okay. Yeah, it's not actually a jump, it is a leap. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you, <laughs> you are right, you are right, yes, you are right. I think there is, uh, you know, uh, um, we uh, have, you know, our own views towards, you know, uh, the using of uh, the chemical weapons. And, of course, we are uh, uh, prohibited in our, you know, uh, we have even in, in, the, in the Egyptian army, uh, we, we don't have, uh, let us say, people specialized on that, but on the contrary, to uh, try to prevent it. So we have people, you know, they are ready to uh, minimize the casualties if somebody will use chemical weapons, you know, against the Egyptian army in any place. But uh, yes, the treaty, of course, uh, we, uh, if we talk about treaties, we also should talk about the treaty of using the landmines. Uh, Egypt also has uh, its own views concerning the landmines. The landmines is very, of course, uh, uh, bad things for the human beings and for the civilians. We are suffering from at least uh, 20 million landmines in our uh, deserts. Uh, you know, they yes, 20 millions. Uh, they were planted by the Germans and the Italians in the Second World War, and nobody even is helping us. You know, to uh, clear these areas. So the, uh, the national security of any country is always, you know, not, uh, I would say, uh, uh, under the control of the diplomats because, you know, we have our own uh, strategy in that regard, but don't uh, wait or let us say don't expect that Egypt one day will support uh, any country will use chemical weapons against uh, Saddam Hussein when he used it in uh, also in uh, many other places actually Egypt was in the forefront to condemn you know this action but uh, to talk about the uh, national security of the of the of Egypt I think this will take us to another quarter and uh, um, I would refrain from not you know uh, giving you details on that Yeah, I can hear you. Hard or not? Hard. <laughs> no, we can we can hear you. We can hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a very, you have a very. Uh, 
Yeah, so, so I'll start with the, the first question because we've been talking about Israel. Um, sort of a, a broad strokes question, but if you, I, I would appreciate if you could describe um, as much as you can your perspective on the extent of the cooperation between Israel and Egypt in the Egyptian campaign in the Sinai and how that has impacted Egyptian-Israeli relations, Israeli-Arab relations more broadly, and also Egyptian-Arab relations. Yeah, good question. Uh, you know, uh, Egypt uh, has succeeded, you know, for the last uh, few years to deploy uh, heavy weapons in Sinai, uh, despite it is, you know, against the peace treaty between the two countries, Egypt and Israel. And uh, as you know, uh, I was serving in Tel Aviv as a deputy ambassador for four years at least, and uh, during that time, we never, uh, you know, uh, tried even, you know, to change this course and or let us say to violate the treaty at all. But now we have a tacit understanding between the two countries. It is not written, but we have a tacit understanding, uh, and it is even, you know, followed every day uh, that Egypt could deploy. Uh, different uh, types of weapons in order to combat the, uh, the, the terrorist groups in Sinai, in North, uh, in North Sinai. And uh, uh, President Sisi met with Prime Minister Netanyahu many times, actually. And we have our embassy there. Of course, you can witness or see that we have uh, now the development uh, that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, he was in Sultanat Oman uh, in Muscat uh, a few days ago. And, uh, you know, we didn't see the reaction uh, from the Arab world, you know, against it. Yeah. So people now, they consider Israel as the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Oman said in Manama also. Israel is part of this region. And, uh, but, you know, don't expect that we have a normal relationship with Israel without, you know, trying to fulfill uh, the uh, rights of the Palestinian people. We cannot, you know, see our brothers and sisters in Palestine, you know, under this kind of occupation. Uh, and then we can ask the Israelis, okay, everything is uh, usual, usual, uh, business as usual. When I was in Israel in, 19, in 1994, I, um, I was in the same day, the same place where uh, Sakrabin was assassinated. Uh, and I told myself, and Cairo also, that, you know, the bullet which uh, killed Ishaq Rabin killed also the peace process. And I think it was uh, right uh, to say that. At that time, we have a good prospects to have uh, Palestinians, Israeli uh, cooperation in different fields. Even, I will maybe surprise you by that, I was always, you know, receiving instructions from Cairo to go to Jerusalem, to the foreign ministry, to urge the Palestinian, uh, sorry, the Israeli government to open the uh, checkpoints for the Palestinian workers to go inside Israel every day to work inside Israel. And Israel, actually, when they were trying to punish the Palestinians, they were closing these, you know, uh, checkpoints uh, to prevent them from uh, going to work in some factories uh, for textile. And, by the way, all these products, uh, they were you know, uh, exported to United States under this quiz, you know, agreement between Israel and Palestine and the United States. So at the time, we had a lot of good prospects that we can uh, reach a sort of uh, cooperation and coexistence. 
But unfortunately, Egal Amir, uh, as he finished uh, the life of uh, Sakrabin, I think he also finished the peace process. Cheer up. <laughs> Well, you know, part of our campaign against, you know, terrorist groups, actually it links with this kind of tunnels which we are suffering from uh, since many years ago, you know, coming from Gaza uh, to our lands. So uh, when it comes to our national security, I think we have all the rights to do or to take all the measures in order to save our soldiers and our people also in, uh, in Sinai. And uh, I am uh, adheres to this principle, and I can even, you know, call for maybe more rigid, you know, systems in order to prevent anybody from uh, uh, penetrate our borders and try to violate, you know, the uh, security in uh, in Sinai. So the uh, checkpoints is open now. By the way, since uh, the last uh, feast, Eid al-Adha. Uh, President Sisi ordered, you know, the borders is to be open for everybody, not just for the elderly, but for everybody. And I think this is uh, uh, well known for, uh, for the whole, uh, whole world. But if you see the size and the, uh, the quantities of, uh, uh, you know, the tunnels, you would be surprised. Some of them, even if they are, you know, uh, from steel, and you can drive your car, small car, inside these tunnels to go from place to place. So I guess uh, I would support any measures in order to actually secure our national security and our people, even if it will come, you know, to close uh, these, uh, you know, checkpoints. Because a lot of people say, okay, Egypt is responsible for this siege for the Palestinians. No, it's not. And, uh, we are not. We are actually helping the Palestinians and we are giving them a lot of facilities and uh, uh, many of them even they are, you know, receiving their education in Egypt from Gaza, not from West Bank, from Gaza. So uh, it is a matter of, uh, of course, uh, keeping our borders safe and in the meantime to give the Palestinians, you know, the right to uh, move freely from place to place. But we are doing our best, and you know all these decisions is under the circumstances coming. I uh, will let us say the situation which is in in, uh, uh, in, in the border. Uh, so um, we have a, a great respons responsibility towards the Palestinians, and uh, in the meantime, we have also great responsibility for our national security. Um, has there been any, any movement in that position? 
Well, we are not fighting Hamas, uh, you know, as part of the terrorism, uh, terrorism campaign. We are trying to uh, put Hamas and Fatah on the, uh, you know, the same table and also to uh, try to uh, unify their efforts in order to start a serious peace process with Israel. Because Israel always claim, uh, I don't have the right partner, you know, to start a serious peace process. So uh, this is actually our main uh, target, is to try to reach a sort of uh, uh, comprehensive and lasting, you know, agreement between the two sides, Fatah and Hamas. But uh, we are not uh, in a cooperation or a direct cooperation with Israel if you talk vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, Hamas. No, this is not our policy at all. Hamas is part of the Palestinian people. And, of course, sometimes they are posing a real threat to our security or our national security, but we are dealing with them, you know, without any kind of cooperation, without Israel in that regard. But our main concern is to put Hamas and Fatah on the negotiating table and try to reach a sort of compromise in order to convince Israel uh, to have a serious peace process. Well, you know, our main policy in that uh, thing is, you know, that we should avoid any kind of, uh, to trigger, you know, these uh, uh, things of uh, Shia and Sunni. Because, you know, we are not responsible about that. I mean, the generation whom living now in, you know, th this thing, it is a very old thing. And uh, if it will start, and if somebody will trigger, you know, this kind of conflict between Shia and Sunni, this will actually burn the whole area. And that's why Egypt, actually, we are not talking about uh, our policy uh, in which, let us say, uh, when we are talking about Iran, we are talking about the Persian, you know, uh, re republic or whatever state or whatever. We never talk about Iran as uh, Shiite, uh, or let us say the leader of Shia in the Islamic world. So we, Egypt is always trying to avoid that because, you know, if it will spark, you know, it will take everything. And we, the whole region actually will indulge in uh, real problems. So I hope nobody actually will talk about Shia and so on in that regard. But, of course, some people in the Arab world, they always try to provoke, you know, this notion and trying to talk about it as the main source of conflicts and the main source of disputes between the, uh, let's say, the Saudi Shia, Saudi Sunni, Bahraini Sunni, and the Bahraini Shia. And we don't have in Egypt uh, a lot of Shia, actually Egypt is Sunni. But in the meantime, we are always trying to diminish, you know, this kind of, uh, or let us say, that level of uh, confrontation between the two uh, uh, things, because, as I told you, this will be the last card uh, in the hands of uh, anybody who wants, you know, to explode, you know, this uh, region is to ignite 
a conflict between the Shia and Sunni. This would be very, very dangerous. And that's why we should keep it, you know, uh, without any, any provocation from one side to another. Yeah, but you know, the presence of ISIS, you know, in, uh, in Sinai, it was not related to, uh, as you mentioned, that uh, you know Sinai was under the uh, treaty is uh, demilitarized. Uh, no, it is not like that. Actually, during the Brotherhood, you know, governments in Egypt, they were uh, encouraging a lot of militants to go to Sinai. Maybe 7,000 or more than 7,000 actually, they enter Sinai under the Brotherhood, you know, uh, presidency. So it is not the matter of the peace treaty or the conditions of the peace treaty, because be before that we never witnessed any uh, problems. But the fact that uh, the Brotherhood actually they opened, you know, the borders and uh, they encouraged some elements to go to Sinai to be, uh, you know, to help. Uh, Hamas people or whatever. In the meantime, the Brotherhood government, they were talking with the United States, telling them, okay, don't uh, be afraid from Hamas. We are, you know, we have the leverage on Hamas, and uh, Hamas will not be a threat to the Israeli security. We can control them. So the Brotherhood, actually, government, they were the, the playing with this card. But uh, uh, the, the next step, uh, I think, uh, in the whole, I would say, peace process, I never uh, heard any uh, or saw any documents talking about a Palestinian army or Palestinian. The, the, the minimum, uh, or let us say the maximum, was always the Palestinian police. But uh, so uh, don't put any kind of relation between the two things in the next, uh, you know, negotiation between Israel and uh, the Palestinians. It will, this is the reality, or, or let us say this is the belief of the Palestinian, uh, the Israeli government, that uh, there is no sovereignty for the Palestinian state, and they don't have the ability to have their own army, but of course police, and the police, of course, under the supervision also of the Israeli forces. So uh, if you will go to Ramallah, you will go through many checkpoints from the Israeli uh, you know, police. And, uh, but inside Ramallah, yes, there is a Palestinian police. But this is the reality which we are facing, and I think the Israelis will adhere to these principles. They will never relinquish you know, the idea that uh, the Palestinian state will have uh, its own army or even you know, the control over the... Uh, the aerial control or even the sea control. This side is a little bit quiet. Why? Yes, we, we had um, His Excellency. Uh, what we did was we organized leaders for each uh, okay. session. So I, in order to create some provocation, I want to um, create a debate, a conversation between our two Egyptian diplomats. Sure.
Last night, we had a, a conversation on the values that diplomats bring to the table in negotiating some of these conflict issues. And I saw that there was, there was some uh, consensus on, on core values that you both bring to the table, but I think there were also different worldviews over different, um, different case studies, such as the Khashoggi issue. And I want you to go through that case study with our students because I think it gives us a good, um, it's, it's an exercise in understanding the ways in which diplomacy work. You had mentioned to me, Mushira, that you come to the negotiating table as a messenger for your government. And to some extent, you hold your own, you suspend your own ideas and values to a degree. You, you check it outside the door when you come to the negotiating table. But still you hold on to, a, uh, to your core values. You're not going to negotiate. There are some values that are non-negotiable. And then there are some that you're going to compromise on. So can you speak to that kind of uh, conflict? Well, good morning, and really, it's a great honor to be here and to be with this distinguished uh, selection of uh, uh, students, I would say uh, leaders. Uh, it's always very inspiring to have this uh, dialogue and to listen to you more than you listen to us. And I congratulate Professor Rangita for the great work that she's always been doing, even before coming to Penn Law, and this is her trademark, bringing the people together uh, from different parts of the world. So it's a great honor uh, to be here and to share the panel with this uh, distinguished uh, uh, speakers and diplomats and, and experts. I have been listening to Minister Arabi, and I must say that uh, uh, as a career diplomat and as a, a former Minister of Foreign Affairs, he has always represented us very well. And uh, I admire very much the way he presented the situation. And we're sorry, it's pessimistic. We cannot bring good news to you, but c'est la vie. What can we do? It is very, very sad, really. And sadness is not confined to our part of the world. It's spilling over. And this is one ethical lesson that Nothing stays within national borders. No matter how far it happens, it affects us. Look at the migration, the, the, the refugees, sorry, not the migration, the refugees. We've never had this influx of refugees, and it is not only a humanitarian problem, it is an ethical problem for the world. Uh, when I look at the Syrian people, when I look at the Iraqi people, when I look at the Palestinian, they are very fine people, very well educated. And you make them refugees, women sexually exploited, children trafficked, terrible, terrible. So we as diplomats, we share common values, maybe my making has become different because of my journey in life. I was a career diplomat, and then I shifted. If, if you have read my, uh, my uh, bio, I shifted to the area of human development, and this is where I saw horrors. 
And instead of brushing, uh, rubbing shoulders with heads of states and ministers of foreign affairs and dignitaries, I went to the most remote areas, uh, uh, lived with the most vulnerable, the most abused and exploited. And this has, you know, made me uh, see the world with a different lens. But I cannot take out my diplomatic mantle because it helped me reach out to these vulnerable groups. So you started by talking about global education and this is really what we need because we live in a global village, yet if we look at different parts of the world, we see the rise of nationalist uh, uh, ideas, uh, nationalist uh, uh, groups uh, winning the votes everywhere. We see Europe suffering population, uh, uh, you know, demographic changes, aging societies, and they really need the immigrants. And the refugees can offer a window of opportunity for some countries. So how, how do you uh, uh, fan these xenophobic uh, sentiments at a time when we are living a problem, and maybe this is some sort of a correction. I'm not, of course, saying that we wage wars to let people flood their countries, but this is an ethical problem, and what have we done for these refugees? This, this may be the, a bit of difference in how I look at things, but you are right in what you said. As diplomats, we are messengers. We, are, we receive instructions to convey certain messages to the countries we are accredited to or conferences we take part in. This doesn't mean that we don't express our views. Uh, of course, when I convey a message, my own makeup will influence how I convey this message. But before reaching the final decision, we are heard. I mean, when, when the government is making a decision on a certain issue, they usually uh, have a dialogue or a conversation, and then sometimes our views are taken into consideration, sometimes it, it is not. So I want to say this to relieve a bit of pressure from diplomats and to explain that maybe the difference, you spoke about the Khashoggi case. My view with regards to the Khashoggi case is that killers or perpetrators must be brought to justice. They must have a fair trial, but they must be brought to justice. But bringing perpetrators to justice does not mean that you have to bring the house down Everybody's talking about the Saudi Arabia will collapse, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we will continue now this crazy scenario we are living in the Middle East. So we have to separate the two. I hope I made myself clear. Good. Thank you. I will continue to press you on some of those tensions, but I'm going to ask uh, the... Uh, those who are part of the institute and who were not um, who were not part of this particular session to ask questions. Sure. Hello. 
Okay, this new strategic alliance um, <clears throat> in the Middle East with Jordan, Egypt, and the Gulf states. Um, I'm curious how you may see any similarities now between Israel and relations in the Gulf states and maybe Israel and Egypt back, you know, in the 1970s when you were in the government, if it's kind of a similar dynamic where it's going to lead up to more normalization of relations. Well, uh, I think it's still, you know, uh, premature to judge the, uh, the mandate of this new alliance because, you know, it was just an idea uh, raised by uh, the Secretary of, uh, of Defense in Manama. And, uh, of course, we have a lot of discussion before that, but, uh, you know, such things, it needs also a sort of support from the public opinion in different countries. Uh, for instance, I cannot expect that the public opinion in Egypt uh, will accept this new idea. Uh, as, because, you know, Egypt, uh, or let's say the Egyptians, uh, are very sensitive towards uh, this kind of alliance, especially it will be, you know, uh, directed to certain power in the region. And we don't want, you know, to provoke the whole issue. And, uh, 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 I mean, deterrent is not, you know, in that way to gather the different countries in order to try to contain the threat of Iran, for instance, because I think this is the mind of the Americans when they are talking about this new alliance, that they should have a front to contain the threat of Iranians in the region. Um, you are talking about the, this uh, new rapport between the Gulf states and uh, Israel. We never, you know, talked against uh, that. And in the meantime, we never promote the idea that Israel should have a normal, uh, you know, relation with the Gulf states. We consider this, you know, Egypt has its own peace treaty and we lived with this cold peace, as a lot of people said, especially here in the United States. And I consider it, uh, you know, to have a cold peace better than to have a war. And this is good. But in the meantime, uh, if the Gulf states, and uh, by the way, when I was in, uh, in Tel Aviv, uh, we had uh, many offices from some Gulf, uh, uh, like Qatar and Oman, uh, that was the beginning, you know, of the, as I said, the good prospects of having peace. But after that, everything is closed, even the uh, um, Tunisia and Morocco. They have an office in Tel Aviv, but after the killing of uh, uh, Sakrabin, all the, these countries actually closed this, their offices. So I, I, I want to tell you that, you know, the, 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 the standard of this kind of relationship between Israel and the Arab states, I think, or the Gulf states, uh, uh, I think it has always been, you know, under the measures of how they can proceed with the Palestinian issue, how they can comply with the international, I would say, demands that the Palestinians should have their own rights also. So, uh, and it is in, in the hand of the Israelis if they will, uh, you know, uh, let us say, give a sort of uh, um, uh, comprehensive uh, uh, plans to give the Palestinians their own rights. I guess this would be the opening, you know, for many uh, relations between Israel and many of the Gulf states and even the uh, Maghreb states also. Your Excellency, this question and this response takes us seamlessly to the next session. And just listening to our student leaders and to you, it really pushes us 
as educators and leaders to redefine foreign policy as a, as a human security issue. Listening to you and listening to our students, what we heard this morning, and quite rightly, because that's how the world has organized national security and foreign policy, as being very much defined by terms of marketization and militarization and securitization. How do we bring the human to the human security? How do we bring back the notion that national security is a human security issue? And how do